gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Gilbert, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm getting a little bit of a late start today. Um, uh, it's weird how I am less organized and less focused and more discombobulated when I have the house all to myself um, than when I have uh, my wife and kid around. Um, um, part of it has to do with the fact that the dogs and cat get very... Um, uh, very uh, concerned about um, the fair Jessica being missing. Uh, they don't really care if Lucy's missing. They're kind of used to that. But if the fair Jessica is missing, that means we are down to one human resource, which is me. And everyone gets jealous for my attention and, and growly and weird about their food bowls. And so it's a little bit like Beirut in the 1980s upstairs um, between all the quadrupeds. Um, I don't think I told people before, but... Uh, yeah, my uh, wife is driving my daughter back to school in California. Um, exact location uh, withheld. And uh, um, and then I'm going to fly out. We have some business stuff we got to do. Uh, I'm going to meet her um, and then we'll fly back, back together um, because we're letting um, Lucy take a car uh, that we don't use very much to school. It's, um, it's a fraught decision, um, or potentially fraught decision, but, um, you know, she got straight A's and, um, um, and California is kind of a place where you'd like to have a car and she can drive and she does have a driver's license. So anyway, they're doing a Thelma and Louise, hopefully not literally like a Thelma and Louise thing. They won't be driving over any cliffs. Uh, trip out west they were in Topeka last night um first night they were in Indianapolis it's funny when I tell people who don't know much about me that yeah my wife and daughter are going on a cross-country drive they're like uh wow that's amazing you know and like when when my daughter would tell people um like oh you gotta you gotta savor those memories you don't know when's the next time you're gonna be able to drive cross country like that. And it's hard to explain to people that we do it so often because we're so arguably stupid in our addiction to sort of uh, road adventures. Anyway, uh, I'm here all alone. Um, it's amazing how quickly my toenails grow when I'm here all alone. Um, they're starting to poke through the Kleenex boxes. Um, and we had a, we had a kind of exciting encounter with deer this morning. Um, uh, Zoe did not kill a deer. Um, she did not catch one. She has in the past and that's a grim story. Um, but it was in my backyard, which means it went over a fence to get into my backyard. And, and Zoe understand, I mean, Pippa too, but Pippa's capacity for, um, violence of any kind is very, very, very limited. Um, and Zoe chased it out of the backyard. It was kind of cool. Um, I don't know about where you live, but in the DC area, deer are wildly overpopulated and it's really kind of, no, I look at, so I'm not a hunter. Um, I just, I, I understand why people like hunting. Um, I understand, I'm, I have no, I have no philosophical or moral problem with, with a lot of hunting. You know, if you want to go shoot deer or wild boar and all that kind of thing, I can't offer you know, some sort of deeply principled objection to it. It's just not for me aesthetically. I just, I'm such a softie about animals. Um, I just don't, I, I like, I like shooting guns and all that kind of thing. I just don't like killing things. And I'm even, you know, I've done a good bit of fishing. I'm even a little squeamish about that. And look, do I recognize that this is, um, wholly hypocritical and, 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 and intellectually inconsistent given my eating habits? Yes. Um, I just talking about the aesthetics of it, um, which is why I say I have no moral or principled objection to hunting things like deer or, um, or boar so long as you do it relatively humanely. Um, um, same thing with, with bird hunting, you know, for me, the, one of the only areas where I start to get, 
uh, a little preachy about it is if it's in any way a rare animal or if it takes zero sportsmanship. Um, you know, uh, I, I find, you know, yeah, it, it might take some courage to hunt a tiger or a lion, although I think today the way they do it, it's pretty safe. Um, but you shouldn't hunt tigers or lions because they're endangered. They're rare, they're beautiful, and they make the they make Earth much more interesting. And there was a time when hunting predators made sense because they were a threat to your livelihood or livestock or family. And uh, those days are all over. If you're going to fly ten thousand miles and hire a bunch of people to make it really easy for you to shoot a friggin' elephant, um, there's nothing manly about it. And uh, given the incredible depletion of of elephants and rhinos and that kind of stuff. I find all that grotesque. Um, and I got zero problem with really strict regulations and penalties for it. Yes. I understand that one way you fund conservation is by allowing a certain limited bit of limited bit of hunting. I get it. Um, and it's, it's a defensible position, but also like, you know, given what we are now learning about the intelligence of elephants and this complexity of their cultures and societies, it's, um, it's still gross to me. And, um, but deer, a lot more deer need to die. And again, I'd rather it be humanely or, or a lot more deer need not to be born. But there's a, you know, there's, it's, it's always controversial around where I live when they try to reduce deer population. There are a bunch of people who I think, you know, have their alarms set to the soundtrack of born free. And, um, they, uh, they think that somehow it is, you know, uh, cruel or a violation of nature or some sort or meddling with Mother Earth or something to call the deer population. And the problem is, and I, I know this is true for a lot of places, but in the, you know, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, um, the deer population is as unsustainably large. And um, I remember a few years ago, I remember the headmaster at my daughter's grade school was telling me this story about how I, I think he lived somewhere in some area in, in Maryland. Um, he was telling me how they had a, um, there was a proposal, like there's no way anyone was going to allow actual hunting of deer. You know, they hire these special teams that come in after dusk. They're really careful. They don't let people in the parks after this certain period of time, blah, 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 blah. And they, they'll, they'll take care of deer. They wouldn't allow anything like that. There'll be no, cause guns are, are anathema. Um, and you know, and killing animals is evil. And, um, and so the alternative that was proposed was to put, um, contraceptives in salt licks and put them up around, uh, uh, the woods and that way you would at least reduce the population uh, somewhat. And people freaked out about that and didn't allow that to happen because that too would be tampering with nature. It also turns out, I, I, I read up on this stuff a, a few times because I'm, I'm kind of interested in it. It turns out that like the contraceptive thing doesn't really work as well as you would like just because other deer come in to uh, the area when even if, even if, even if a deer is on the pill, um, as it were, uh, it doesn't mean they're not in heat and that will still attract deer from outside the area, which creates more car crashes and that kind of thing. Um, it doesn't really reduce the population that much. Um, I guess the car crashes might, but, uh, you know, I mean, another thing you could do is just sort of do the Japanese method and expose all the male deer to enormous amounts of deer porn, um, so that they lose any interest in actually procreating. Uh, but that's really hard. He's got to kind of like strap them in and then you got to, you know, show them the video and they don't really see, you know, two dimensional stuff. Right. And so anyway, that hasn't worked. But, you know, one of the things which whenever I get into these arguments with people around here about deer is, uh, um, there is all sorts of, uh, native plants. There are, there are all sorts of native plant species, including trees that are almost on the verge of being wiped out in, in the mid-Atlantic because of deer. Because deer love to eat saplings. And so, and they, I, get, I think they, they started to reintroduce white-tailed deer in the 30s or something like that. And so 
since then, um, uh, the number of trees that can actually make it to maturity so that deer can no longer eat them um, of certain species uh, has just been wildly reduced. And they've done some really cool experiments in Maryland and Virginia where they'll take like an acre of woods and just fence it off, just put up a good sturdy fence that the deer can't jump over and then just let nature take its course. And the plant species that emerge inside the fence um, are very different than the ones that thrive outside of the fence. And um, it's also like the overpopulation of deer has led to, is beneficial to some invasive species because the deer don't like to eat those, but they like to eat the native ones. And so anyway, there's just like this whole missing population of middle-aged trees around here of certain species. I can't remember what, it's not maple, but there are a couple of them. And the problem is, is that there are native bird populations that depend more on those trees than on the invasive ones. And so the presence of deer, you know, the omnipresence of deer without any wolves um, or mountain lions around here and no ability to sort of kill them except with your SUV um, is actually very, very disruptive um, to the natural biodiversity of the area. And I think just a really important argument to make when you're talking to people who, who love to condescend to you from um, a very great height about how they're the ones who love nature because they don't want to kill deer. Um, and, uh, you know, it's similarly like, I know there's some, there's some pushback on it, but if you've never seen that, uh, um, Yellowstone video about the reintroduction of wolves and how it actually helped in the restoration of like beaver habitat and all sorts of other things, because the deer were keeping, um, all sorts of plants from growing, um, along the side of the river, which, uh, uh deer and elk, I guess. Um, um, which kept all sorts of other, uh, fauna from, from thriving. And, you know, you, it's, it's, you know, as Mr. Miyagi says, it's all about balance. Anyway, I didn't plan on a long deer conversation. I apologize. It's just that kind of morning. Um, yeah, so I got, I got to do CNN this afternoon and, um, I'm kind of behind the eight ball on a bunch of things. I'm trying to figure out what to write the G file about. I'm kind of mad at myself um, because I, the second I saw that gas stove story, I knew it was going to be a big deal. And, um, um, you know, and I, I tweeted this the morning it broke something like, uh, this will go over well. And, you know, using what, uh, literary critics call understatement, uh, to make a point. Um, and the whole thing is, and so I, I, I emailed with Steve and with Adam O'Neill, our executive editor about how we really should get someone to write on this. And, um, and I, I, I wish I had just sort of leaped, leapt into it myself because, um, the story was just moving so fast. I got to say, um, this is like, like. I think longtime listeners of this podcast and longtime readers of me over the last seven years, at least understand that I am ever so wary of like leaping into um, one of these sort of contrived, one of the, one, you know, a sort of contrived culture war thing. I thought the Dr. Seuss thing was incredibly stupid. Um, I'm trying not to take that kind of bait. I'm trying not to like do the whole Twitter um, join the mob thing, but man, am I tempted to just go friggin' whole hog on this thing? Because it is amazing how widespread um, the, the effort has suddenly become to say this was all a manufactured culture war fight by conservatives. You have uh, Axios writing a piece like that. You have the Washington Post writing a piece like that. You have all these people on the Twitters and on cable news talking about, oh, these dumb conservatives, you know, uh, making gas stoves, you know, uh, sort of like their Bibles and their guns and like Matt Brunegg guys talking about how, who's a, you know, committed socialist guy who's talking about how, you know, the, the sort of idiot right is, has allowed itself to believe that gas stoves are part of its identity and status. Um, Anyway, there's just an enormous amount of really dumb stuff being said. 
that's also just freaking untrue. You know, until uh, if I write about it, I'll do a proper TikTok on it. But like um, until this story broke by, I think, Bloomberg, where um, Richard Trumka of the Consumer Product Safety Commission said that banning gas stoves um, was on the table. Uh, nobody in America was really talking about gas stoves with, with a caveat. Cause like, this is one of the reasons I'm mad at myself. I listened to this big long piece on NPR a year ago. Um, um, I checked actually yesterday. Um, it was like in January. Yeah, it was like, um, here it is. Uh, no, it was October. Uh, there was a piece on Morning Edition called We Need to Talk About Your Gas Stove, Your Health and Climate Change. And I remember ranting to my wife about it at the time saying, oh man, they're going to do to gas stoves what, they're, what they did to light bulbs. And um, um, the, pe- the thing that I remember annoyed me so much about the piece was it kind of had this Marxist framing that somehow big business had duped Americans into using gas, uh, gas stoves when only like a third of America uses gas stoves, something like that. Um, and again, so this was in 2021. Uh, so it was more than a year ago. It's like almost two years ago. Um, and the piece has the, the, the piece from 2021 has this, you know, set up where they talk about, you know, they, they play weird adver- old advertising from like the World's Fair and all these kinds of things to convince, you know, Americans that using gas is good. Um, and the thing that annoyed me about the piece was that I remember it not having anybody on to say, uh, well, gas cooking actually is good, right? I mean, like it's good, it's better at cooking than electric stoves are. Um, that's why, um, you know, I've been to a lot of fancy restaurants and I've watched a lot of fancy cooking shows because my wife and I are into that kind of thing. I don't think I've ever seen anybody use an electric range. Uh, you do, it just, it's just gas is better and, um, maybe not better than induction, which we can talk about in a second, I guess, but gas is simply better. And it'd be one thing to say, we got to get rid of gas stoves because they're bad for your health, which I don't think is really the case, um, or they're bad for uh, climate change reasons, which is has more validity to it, but whatever. Um, and it's a shame because they're actually better, right? I mean, like, that's the argument that is intellectually defensible, and you could have gotten anybody on, the, on there to say they're better. Um, anyway, so it's been in my head for a long time that this is going to be a thing, and then I recognize when this story broke that it was going to be a big thing. And, um, I just wish we had, we had leapt on it sooner. I think Kevin might write about it, which will be great. But the simple fact is, is that, you know, with the exception of my, uh, criminology of NPR stories in 2021, I'm not aware of pretty much anybody talking about this or thinking this was a thing. And then, you know, a government commission floats the idea that they're going to ban gas stoves in America. And, people flip out and say, this is ridiculous. And it was based upon what has turned out to be um, a really craptacular, shoddy, unreliable study, um, which we don't need to get into here. Um, And what's funny is is like the old argument was that it was really about climate change. And now it's, it's, it's for the children. And, and Charlie Cook was really good about pointing this out on Twitter. It's like this, there's this um, weird, you know, tendency to like, it's like the coordination of bird flocks, right? You know, like how do the birds all know to turn at the exact same moment kind of thing where um, word goes out that the government might do something that conservatives don't like. So then you get people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others immediately sounding like they have been experts on this issue for years and that you are the last Neanderthal who doesn't know that gas stoves are terrible. And she like starts lecturing people on Twitter. And, you know, as Charlie pointed out, uh, she never tweeted or talked about gas stoves before, but there's like this, this outsourcing of expertise that people just sort of, you know, it's how like 
I don't know, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, all of a sudden you get all these extra experts on Ukraine um, or at the beginning of impeachment, everybody sort of all of a sudden becomes a, a you know, a lawyer and expert on rules of evidence. Um, it's a little different because there's, there's this haughty condescending sort of assumption of I'm an authority and I knew this all along and you're the moron for not understanding why this has to happen. And that was just sort of everywhere. And conservatives made us think about it. And then, uh, you know, the, the Consumer Product Safety Division um, Commission backed down and said they're not going to do it, which they shouldn't. Um, and, and then you get all of these sophisticates in the media uh, saying, oh, look at those boob conservatives who've turned gas stoves, cling, you know, keeping their gas stoves into... A, you know, into a culture war issue and part of their identity and all this kind of stuff. It's like, like conservatives didn't consider gas stoves part of their identity, you know, five days ago. The only reason why conservatives sort of said anything about gas stoves is that these gargoyle, you know, bureaucratic gargoyles on their perches said that they might snatch them away from everybody. And look, first of all, like, whether or not to ban gas stoves for all sorts of constitutional, legal, and technological reasons um, shouldn't be in the purview of the federal government and certainly shouldn't be up to an unelected, you know, commission that just wants to, you know, issue a ukas or a diktat um, uh, based on really flimsy science. Uh, but, you know, it shouldn't be a culture war issue at all because it just doesn't lend itself to one. But if the federal government is going to announce without any legislation or anything like that, or threaten to announce that it's going to get rid of something that a lot of people have and a lot of people like, particularly, you know, and I got to remind people in, in democratic, you know, majority States. Um, uh, but if they're going to, if they're going to announce something like that, blaming the people who oppose it, as the aggressors is just such cheap, bad faith politics. And this is, this has always been, you know, my um, complaint about how uh, 90% of culture war stuff is reported is that the, the, the people, and I wrote about this at length in my underrated second book, you know, um, the, Progressives, by definition, you know, literally the word progress, right? The, the believe in moving the wheel of history forward. They're the ones who are, you know, on the cutting edge of progress. They're the ones who are, um, are, are leaving behind the outmoded and outdated things in our lives um, and, you know, in, in tradition. And that's, that's fine. That's what, you know, progressives are for. I mean, obviously I disagree with them on a lot of things, but that's what progressivism, you know, does, right? It just, and they're very proud of it when, you know, they were right. You know, the, the progressives will talk about how they were um, leading the way, the tip of the spear, the avant-garde on everything, on all sorts of civil rights and cultural issues. Sometimes the story, their story needs more nuance than they provide, but in broad brushstrokes, they're right. But the thing is, it's the second their attempts to sort of advance the wheel of history to, you know, pull the atavistic Neanderthal wretches with their boomsticks and, you know, sky god um, into the 21st century, the second there's any resistance, the tendency is to call the resistors the aggressors in the culture war. Um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm okay with gay marriage and all that kind of stuff, but uh, I shouldn't say all that kind of stuff because I don't know what what your all kind of stuff and my all kind of stuff, whether they're the same all kinds of stuff. But I, I think gay marriage is here to stay, and that's that's fine, and that's right. Uh, but like the idea that somehow the people who were clinging to uh, the millennia old definition of marriage were the aggressors in the culture war is just ludicrous. It's fine to argue that they were wrong, right? 
or it's fine to argue that they had a good point or they had a good, you know, their perspective was valid and credible, but the better argument was on the other side. I mean, all those things are, are perfectly fine. But to say that the forces of, you know, the forces defending traditional marriage were the aggressors is to assume that like the progressive position has been the baseline position for millennia. And uh, it's just not the case. And you can't take credit for being an agent of change and then claim that anybody who disagrees with you or shows you even the slightest resistance um, is actually the reactionary trying to drag us backwards. Um, because all they're doing is saying, you know, the status quo we had as of yesterday was fine. And, um, and like, it's really funny to see. I've, I've seen a bunch of it. All these people talking about the Matt Brunig guy did it uh, too, uh, where they talk about how, uh, you know, if you want to just give up, you know, you should stop making gas stoves part of your identity, um, which I got to say strikes me as like truly bizarre. I grew up in New York City in the 1970s. Everyone had gas stoves. Like, you know, poor people had gas stoves, rich people had gas stoves. I don't think I saw an electric stove um, until I was in high school um, uh, in New York. I mean, I, I, the only place I ever saw electric stoves were when we went on family trips to relatives in Virginia or New Jersey or someplace else. I don't know. But like just gas stoves were the norm. Um, and the idea that somehow uh, they were part of the sort of right wing identity is just weird to me you know i mean like every almost every house i knew every apartment i knew growing up people had formica countertops um but i don't think anybody said you know as as a formica countertop american um i will not tolerate the state taking away my formica countertops and it was just like this whole idea that gas stoves are like guns or bibles um, is just very, very strange to me. I love the people just in terms of like, you know, the sort of all these, you know, supposed lovers of the proletariat um, saying, you know, you just, you should just abandon your weird commitment to this outdated technology, which again, I don't think is outdated. Um, and, you know, and get an induction system in your kitchen. You know, like, that's expensive. I mean, really, you're telling you're like the 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 Dominican immigrants in you know in Spanish Harlem or in the Bronx who use gas stoves. Um, you know, are, you should, you're telling them that they should take all of their disposable income and then some uh, to get uh, you know a ten thousand dollar or whatever it is induction range in their kitchen because. Um, to do otherwise is to show allegiance to sort of Fox news and talk radio. I mean, it's just goofy, weird that people think these are real arguments. Um, so anyway, I, you know, uh, this is one of these things where um, I get really, I get angry at the, at, at, at the liberal media, you know, Axios, Washington post, uh, Bloomberg are all in one way or another to blame for this whole thing. And I really get angry at the, the victim blaming going on here, which says that, you know, the people protesting are the aggressors. Um, but also if you actually wanted to get rid of gas stoves, which I gather there's considerable progress on in New York, which I think is stupid. Like you can't do it. You can't use gas and new construction and all the, all this stuff. Um, you know, just to be clear, like I get the push for electrification, but if you generate any of your electricity from fossil fuels, uh, coal, natural gas, whatever, um, you are not getting, you are not going carbon free if you, uh, um, make everybody use electricity because the electricity is generated from the fossil fuels. You know, it used to be, I, I knew all sorts of energy expert types. Um, it's probably less the case today, but you know, when the first electric cars came off the line, you know, you know, I, I knew a couple of people who would talk about how if you were, 
if you drove like one of the first Teslas, or I guess was it Prius, one of the first electric ones. Um, if you drove one of the, the early electric cars in say Ohio, uh, you were using a coal powered car because the electricity was coming from coal. Um, and so, yeah, you, you cut out gasoline, but you actually are using a dirtier fossil fuel, um, you know, on net, uh, by driving an electric car, at least you were, um, but like, again, if you wanted to do this, um, in a serious way, the dumbest possible way is basically the way that the, this tribal loon worked, right? The idea that like it should come from a bunch of unelected bureaucrats who clearly don't have their ducks in a row on the science. Um, you know, everything I've seen about this study that it was supposedly based on was um, pretty shoddy. Um and and not dispositive, and apparently the authors of it are kind of backing away from it too. Um, uh, and not up for public comment, not up for review to come out like a, a, a bolt from the blue. Um, it's just it's guaranteed to make the resistance to this policy worse. And I'm not going to get into my whole Congress doesn't work anymore, but like. If you're going to ban gas stoves, you need congressional hearings where you have competing experts testifying in public on the record to make their case. You need people debating it. Um, this is the kind of politics you get when Congress doesn't do its job and the federal and, 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 and unelected bureaucrats and commissioners think it's their job to legislate um, from the executive branch. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to propose sweeping policy, it should go through Congress because that's where politics, political debate is supposed to happen and let everybody, let all the stakeholders and the public and the media and the experts, let them, everybody weigh in in public view. But when you do this stuff this way, it infuriates everybody. It makes people, it fuels populism. Um, it lacks often, you know, legitimacy. And, um, and it makes it difficult to uh, trust, you know, the federal government. I mean, like, like if I were a big deep state guy, this whole thing would be, you know, aha, I told you so. Um, and you cr and like to the extent anybody actually associates their identity with gas stoves other than high end chefs. Um, the reason they do it is because of the way this was handled and because of the ridiculous condescension from people like AOC and others. Um, at people who protested it, um, like they're the ones who are responsible for forging this identity. They're the, you know, the press, the, the Washington Post and these people, you know, crapping on conservatives from a great height and blaming them for this thing is how you get this identity. Right. Because like conservatives are not as stupid as you think they are. Anyway, it's just all so ridiculous. Uh, but maybe I got it out of my system now. I don't need to write about it. So I haven't had a chance to opine on the other, I guess, I guess the more important story of the week, um, this Biden stuff. And I do think I have to write something about that. So maybe I'll just keep it short. I think it is obvious that what, given the facts that we have now, right, which, and we need a lot more facts. I think it is obvious that what Trump did at Mar-a-Lago is worse than what Biden did in these various locations. And I think that's an important point to keep in mind. That is a relevant point to the conversation. But it is not like a mic drop, you know, dispositive, that's all you need to know thing. I mean, I listened to this, uh, I listened to a bunch of Morning Joe this morning, you know, they're making it sound like you're an idiot if you are criticizing Biden because what Trump did was so much worse. And the problem with that is, I agree that what Trump did is probably so much worse. We'll see. It, it's, it's important to point out that what Trump did was less hypocritical than what Biden did, um, because Biden is the guy who goes around saying what Trump did was so irresponsible and he can't imagine how anybody could do what Trump did and how everybody knows I take, you know, classified material seriously and blah, 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 blah. And then it turns out he screwed up royally, right? I mean, what what is a... You know, what is classified material doing in an envelope that says 
uh, personal, um, classified materials, not personal. Um, what's it doing in his friggin' garage? Um, and anyway, my point is that are two points. First, on it being worse than what Trump did. Correct. So far as we know, that seems pretty obvious to me. Um, but the standard, I mean, this gets at the sort of at the heart of all the stuff I've been writing about whataboutism and, um, and the weaponization of norms. Um, the standard isn't whether the standard for whether or not something was bad, isn't whether or not it was worse or better than what Trump did. The standard about whether something was bad, at least in this case, is the freaking law. You know, did Biden violate the law? Is what he did illegal? Um, and beyond that, was it sloppy? Was it inappropriate? All of these kinds of things. And yet, it is amazing once you start listening to listening for it, how many people will say, roll their eyes and say what Trump did was so much worse as if that exonerates Biden. And it doesn't. It doesn't come close. I mean, like, if, if I hit a kid with my car and break his leg because I'm texting, and then I say, um, but look, I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald shot the president, murdered the president of the United States. Um, no one would say, <laughs> you know, oh, well, in that case, you did nothing wrong. But we do this in politics all of the time where we absolve one actor because another actor that everybody doesn't like, at least on their side, did, so, did something worse or allegedly did something worse. And, um, and that's just a, you know, a really dumb form of argumentation that is everywhere. Um, and so I have, I, I think Mayor Garland was absolutely right to appoint a special counsel. I think he needed to appoint a special counsel. I was planning on writing about why he needed to appoint a special counsel. And then I got home and saw that he had appointed a special counsel. Um, I think that, uh, and I, I, do, I do love how Biden does this thing. It's actually very Trumpy. It's just the style is so different, but he does this thing where he, you know, gets in front of the microphone and he kind of dismisses these questions by saying, look, everyone knows I take classified material very seriously. Who's everyone? What, I mean, what is that? That's like, you know, um, you know, Trump with his sort of everyone knows, you know, um, I'm a stable genius. Everyone says I am the best president, you know, um, everyone, you know, uh, you know, it's well known that I can bake 12 minute brownies in seven minutes. Uh, uh, I, you know, I've been writing about and reading about Joe Biden for 25 years or so, something like that, 30 years. I don't recall anybody ever saying, well, the one, you know, one of the things we know about Joe Biden is he takes classified material really seriously. I mean, I just like, that's not a thing. And it's this invoking of an unseen authority, which again is just like really Trump-like, you know? Um, and, uh, um, but there's also just the simple sort of hypocrisy problem is, and, and again, hypocrisy, the hypocrisy thing is we are so obsessed with hypocrisy in this country and in this culture. And like, I don't like hypocrisy and I don't like inconsistency either, which is different than hypocrisy, even though people have a really hard time understanding that. But hypocrisy is not the worst thing in the world, but in politics, it is just deadly right now you know just good luck having a clean argument about biden versus trump on the mar-a-lago stuff in this climate i wish that it were otherwise and i will endeavor you know as the facts come in uh to make the, the kinds of distinctions that i think need to be made but uh, you know i think nick Cataggio and others are just absolutely right this just makes it harder um for um a clean indictment of donald trump in this context and unlike a lot of people, I'd be perfectly happy, uh, almost giddy, at least for a day or so until I realized that, you know, 
politics just doesn't change. Um, but um, I'd be perfectly happy to say, uh, reach some national consensus that the conduct of Donald Trump and Joe Biden is such that neither of them should run for president ever again. Uh, that's a that's an easy call for me to make. Um, then again, you know, I'm not I'm not for age limits per se on presidents because I think some people are more compass mentis than others at certain ages. Uh, but it's just nuts that these two pretty unpopular. Um, you know, uh, I guess Trump is still a septuagenarian and Biden is now an octogenarian, but these two old men, uh, who are, let's just say not at the top of their game. And I know that Trump was able to say a man, a camera, banana, whatever, uh, at 10 minute integrals, which he thinks makes him, um, you know, a charter member of Mensa or something. Uh, but these guys, you know, it's time for them to go out to pasture and it's just weird. We've now had, we had a, we had a race in 2016 where we had the most unpopular candidate in America running against the second most unpopular candidate in America. Um, both of them so unpopular that they actually had a chance to lose to the other. Um, and then in 2020, we had something very similar. Um, and now in 2024, it's entirely possible that we'll have it again. I don't, you know, I'm not saying we will, I don't know how likely it is, but it's just like enough already get off the stage. And, um, and in the context of, of this classified stuff, um, it would be terrible and a true sign of the corrupting power of politics. If in any way, the justice department came to the conclusion that what Biden did um, shouldn't be prosecuted because it wasn't as bad as what Trump did. And um, this, you know, this is the, this is what, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the last, you know, seven years talking about how Trumpism corrupted conservatism. Um, I, you know, I know I've told this story before I was on a panel on an NR cruise very early in the Trump presidency and someone, I won't, it wasn't someone who worked for NR, but there was somebody, you know, one of the guest speakers um, was asked how Trump was doing and their response was, well, better than Hillary. Um, and the audience clapped, or at least some in the audience clapped. And I've heard versions of this a gazillion times since then. And it infuriates me. Um, I'm a pretty close student of the history of National Review and of the conservative movement. And I am unaware of a time when anybody who took their role on the, in the conservative movement seriously said, well, this president um, is at least doing better than their Democratic opponent would have been doing had their Democratic opponent won in the last election. Nobody who was supportive or critical of George W. Bush in, say, 2005 was saying, well, at least he's better than Kerry. Not, I mean, they might be saying that as a political argument, um, you know, in an outward-facing way. But if you're talking amongst conservatives, um, you know, the, the way you're supposed to judge Republican presidents is how they're doing according to um, you know, a conservative agenda, not how much better they're doing on a liberal agenda than a liberal agenda. This was sort of the early gateway drug to Trump apologetics because the fact that he wasn't Hillary gave people, a lot of people on the right, permission to feel fine about anything that Trump did. Well, at least he's not Hillary, right? I mean, at least we made that right call. And this gets to that point that you've all, you know, made about how cynicism is hard to maintain. And a lot of the people who originally justified and rationalized voting for Trump um, as a hold your nose thing, he's better than Hillary. Um, they couldn't sustain that level of cognitive dissonance and that level of cynicism of saying, you know, our guy is so crappy and terrible um, but it's a transactional thing, and at least he's better than the other team. People don't want to think that way. 
And over time, they convinced themselves, you know, not only is, was Trump the lesser evil, he's an affirmative good. No, he's great. You just see that process all over the place. And the, this is the same thing that you see happening with Democrats and liberals where, you know, they hate Trump probably more than most conservatives hated Hillary, which, and Hillary was not popular <laughs> and, um, on the right. Their vilification of Trump which obviously I share some of their critiques quite passionately, but their vilification of Trump blinds them to Biden's faults. Although I gotta say the media coverage so far on Biden on this classified document stuff has been very good. You, know, you can't claim that, you know, the, the mainstream media circled the wagons around Biden quite yet, given that the story was broken by CBS news. Um, and I've watched some of those press conferences and they were, or listened to them and they were pretty hard pretty hard on the administration. And this is getting a lot of coverage. Uh, Dave Fokenflick from NPR was on the other morning and he was pointing out that CNN, where I am now a contributor, was covering um, this story more than Fox was. Uh, now, remains to be seen. I, I don't, I haven't been following how any of the cable networks have followed this stuff, you know, in detail, but, um, uh, you know, one of the metrics about whether a network is taking these things seriously is just simply the airtime they give it. So anyway, I, uh, I, I think what, what we know right now, what Biden did was bad. I thought the dispatch podcast was good on this stuff where they, you know, where David pointed out, um, it's actually pretty easy to take care of classified material the right way. Um, and it should be expected of, you know, political leaders that they do so if they are going to be overseeing the government that puts rank and file people in prison for doing the same things that they do, that they should have, they should take even greater care. They should take even greater care than that when they are going to condemn uh, political opponents for doing the same things that they were doing themselves. But anyway, I, I think that this is a, um, I think it's a real story. I think one interesting heuristic, if you, want to use a fancy pants word uh, for how to think about this would be let's imagine Mar-a-Lago never happened. And instead the fact pattern that we know, or that is unfolding now for Biden had unfolded for Trump. How many of these people saying what Biden did really is just completely apples and oranges. It's not as bad. It's no big deal. How many of them would be saying it is outrageous that Trump kept, you know, classified materials in a folder marked personal um, in, his in his garage at his vacation home, you know, blah, 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 blah. Again, what Trump did was worse from the facts that we know. Uh, I think Trump can credibly be charged with obstruction. Um, I think his mens rea was probably different than uh, Biden's. Um, I was going to make a joke that I probably shouldn't, but. Uh, so what? Trump is not the yardstick of all things. Um, what Biden did was, or seems to have been wrong on the merits, um, and it should be treated as such. Uh, and beyond that, I don't, I don't know what, much else to say. I don't know there is much more to say right now um, um, on that stuff. You know, the political timing, the timing of it seems pretty political. We'll get to the bottom of it. Glad there's a special counsel. I think Congress will look into it in an asinine way, probably, but so be it. Um, oh, but, you know, all right, one last point on this heuristic thing, right? That cuts both ways. Um, you know, it is infuriating to see Republicans, uh, sort of Freedom Caucus types out there and all the usual, you know, Remera, uh, uh, you know, crazy right pundit types. Um out there saying uh, that what Biden did with classified documents is outrageous. And, you know, there's even talk about, you know, this is what we need to impeach him for and all this kind of stuff. But then you ask, okay, so what Trump did with his classified documents is uh, that a problem? They're like, oh, no, no, there's no, there's no problem there. You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't make the standard for bad behavior Biden without acknowledging that you know, 
Trump's behavior falls short of that standard too. And you can't make Trump the standard without at least acknowledging that, you know, that Biden, I don't think falls short of the the Trump standard, but he falls short of the legal standard and the political, you know, the, the political standard. And the, it reminds me a lot of, um, during the, in the lead up to the first impeachment, Trump impeachment, I would hear people all the time. I had conversations with people where they would say, you know, because of that, what was it? The Burisma stuff would come out, came out and people would say, Biden's actually guilty of what they're accusing Trump of. And I remember I had a conversation. I'll, Maybe I'll write about this, but I'd have conversations with people where you'd have the, uh, I'd say, okay, so let's assume that these allegations about Biden are true. I think it's a little murkier than it, it's been proven to be murkier than we thought at the time, but whatever. Let's say it's true that Biden used his position as vice president to influence uh, the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor, blah, 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 um, to protect his son. Hunter, who was on the board of Burisma or whatever. It was the allegation, something along those lines. Let's assume that's true. Was that bad? And they'd say, of course it's bad. It's outrageous. It makes him unfit to be president. Um, he, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I say, okay, well, let's just assume that the accusations against Trump are true. Since you say that what Biden did is what they're accusing Trump of, let's say those accusations are true. Does that mean that Trump is unfit for office or should be impeached? And they would sort of do the, this does not compute thing and be like, what the, what the hell are you talking about? And um, of course not. Trump's awesome. And that's the thing. It's like, pick a state. The whole point of standards is that they are so, so they're, they're, they're supposed to cover both Republicans and Democrats. And if your standard only applies to the people you don't like, it's not a standard. And we're going to have so much of this nonsense um, in the weeks ahead. It really does, you know, make me feel so much better when people accuse me of both sidesism because uh, having contempt for both parties actually, I think, makes me see this stuff more clearly than a lot of the people who think I've gone squishy or left-wing and oh, I'm going to hear enough from them. Oh, uh, just one little thing I saw um, this morning. Uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how some startup has figured out some technology that can actually pull carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, and it seems like it's pretty promising. Uh, I think this is this is a great example of what I was talking about with Jim Pethokoukis, um on the first podcast this week, and as well as the stuff I was writing about in my case for techno Marxism. Um, like this is, and actually, I wrote a little bit about this in the in the G file this week. Anyway, the whole point is that uh, like technology technological innovation and economic growth will provide opportunities to fix problems rather than simply treat problems. And like, I have no idea. I haven't read to the bottom on this piece about the carbon scrubbing thing, but let's just say that like, this is a really promising technology that's going to take off. Um, If we had cold fusion, right? If we had marketable commercial cold fusion, what would be wrong with putting carbon scrubbers all around the world? You know, let's just assume that you believe the climate change is a real and serious crisis, right? Um, you don't want to overdo it. You don't want all the trees, you know, starving. But uh, it would be so much better if, like, in 10 years, you could fix the climate so that burning fossil fuels doesn't matter anymore, right? But then again, if you had the fusion reactors to power these things, you wouldn't need to burn fossil fuel anyway. You could just fix the climate, right? I mean, like, I understand the ozone layer thing. There was a report earlier this week. The ozone layer is on its way to being fully recovered. 
And I completely understand why that the ozone, the hole in the ozone layer was a hard thing to patch, right? You couldn't just have the equivalent of, um, you know, lay down some tar paper and, and cover it up kind of thing. Um, and we didn't really have the technology to just go launch a bunch of ozone bombs up in the troposphere or whatever. Um, so you had to sort of get rid of certain chemicals that were eating away at the ozone layer. Um, and healed, but let's say, but wouldn't it have been better if we did have a hole in the ozone layer, or if it wasn't, if it wasn't healing, if we had the ability to just sort of fix the problem, patch the hole. Um, and this is the kind of thinking, like I, I am so open to hearing about problems with the environment because I actually care about the environment. I really care about conservation. Um, I worry about ocean, ocean acidification, but wouldn't it be great? if we could just figure out a way to, you know, deacidify the oceans. I've, I've talked about making big giant artificial reefs out of limestone and a bunch of, you know, scientists, you know, types have written to me to say, there's just not enough limestone in the world to do what I'm talking about. Um, but who knows, maybe we can manufacture, maybe AI can figure out a way to, to manufacture something that, um, works just as well to, to de-acidify the ocean. Um, you know, maybe we can just, there's, we can come up with some, you know, you know, ocean, oceanographic version of Tums that we just, you know, feed the ocean and it fixes it. Um, I find, you know, lab grown meat kind of creepy in a sort of ick factor kind of way, but I'm totally open to the idea that if we could figure it out so that it's not gross, um, you know, That'll take care of your cow farts problem. Um, uh, you know, fix things. Don't just treat things. You know, it's if you had a pill to cure your flu, it would be better to take the pill than to throw a bunch of blankets on top of yourself and shiver and sweat in bed for three days. Um, so much of the sort of climate change stuff is really is sort of Trojan horse stuff about, you know, wanting a different kind of economic system. I just think that we need to start teaching people, uh, you know, that we need to be more like Captain Kirk fighting the Gorn, where, you know, we, we use the materials around us to solve problems. Who was I talking to about this? I can't remember. Maybe it was, oh, it was right. That was Pethacoucas also. Like, I, I, you know, they're just a large number of people who I think have convinced themselves and others that they actually care purely about the problems that they're trying to solve. When in reality, the thing that makes them attracted to problem solving is this idea of using power, using state power to impose their will on others. Um, that's kind of the only way I can really explain some of the rush to defend banning gas stoves um, by people who didn't know Jack about gas stoves 24 hours earlier is they just have the instinctive compulsive belief that they should side with the state for doing uh, big things regardless of whether or not people want them. And, um, and I think that there's just, there's an enormous amount of that sort of psychological motivation at work in a lot of these arguments, um, uh, like again, I, and I think now this is, this has been, this is this, talking about both sides is, this is, this is now a more bipartisan phenomenon, um, than it's been in any time in my lifetime. Um, you know, the, the, the libertarian impulse, how to put this, um, I didn't realize I was going to get into this at, an hour or two in. So I'll, I'll try to be short and pithy. I think it has always been the case that some of the libertarian impulse that a lot of libertarians and conservatives thought was authentically libertarian was really sort of um, knee jerk opposition to whatever the powers that be, the establishment, the state wanted to do. Right. You're not the, it was more, you're not the boss of meism than fully-fledged libertarianism. To a certain degree, I think that's fine and good. I mean, I, I like 
that tendency in America. You know, I mean, I like that we rejected, you know, the Americans just said, screw you, we're not doing the metric system. I think that's great about America. The problem with that now is that it's become this sort of reflexive thing where it's not so much libertarianism, it's just if they're for it, we're against it. And, um, and the problem with that mindset, it's sort of like the problem with contrarianism in general, like contrarianism without wisdom is just a, a refined form of asininity. Um, um, automatically being opposed to whatever the other side favors is another kind of asinin, asininity. And it's not necessarily libertarian anymore either, or even libertarian flavored, because there are areas where Democrats are, or liberals are actually pretty libertarian. And you now get, you know, conservatives want to be statist in the areas where the other side is libertarian. But you also have, just to get back to the point, you also just have, you know, conservatives who are statist these days, who want to do industrial policy, who want to impose values, who want to um, punish corporations that don't hew to the political line that the, they lay down. Again, some of this is just owning the libs style politics where, you know, if it bothers the other side, it's good. But you can also see a real seduction of power at work here where people are invoked who are, are, are think that they're in the business of problem solving when really what they're in the business of is providing a rationale for why they should be running things, why they should be in charge. And I see that all over the place. What this has to do, what does this have to do with climate change? Oh yeah. So anyway, like I think if you can free yourself of that mindset, right? You know, it's free yourself of this idea that if I'm not in charge, it's really not worth, or if, if my side isn't in charge, it's not worth uh, doing something. You know, it's sort of like Trump, you know, he would much rather be the undisputed leader of a smaller minority party GOP than one of many leaders in a majority party GOP. You know, that's why, you know, he thinks the only litmus test for supporters should be their adherence to him and to his, you know, you know, elect, stolen election stuff, um, because he wants to have unopposed unitary control over whatever Republican Party is left. You have lots of people who want to have control, and that's the most important thing. And they convince themselves that it's okay because they're the only ones who can really fix some sort of problem. And um, I think if you can liberate yourself from that, right? If you can say, um, I don't care who gets credit. I don't care who gets power, who has power. I actually just want to fix the problem. Um, that frees you up from this unhealthy attachment to state power. Um, you know, there are people, there are a lot of people who, I mean, like Bernie Sanders is one, really doesn't like SpaceX and in private sector, you know, space industry, because he thinks if it's not the government doing, it's not doing it, it's not worth doing because there are these people who think that the government is the thing that unifies all of us. And it just doesn't, you know, the NFL is a lot more power, a lot more popular than the government. Um, and so, but if you can free yourself up from this sort of statism for whatever reason that you prefer the state over everything else, it makes it easier to solve problems because you let different people and different groups with different prerogatives and different incentives and different strategies tackle the problem from a lot of different angles. And, um, you know, and that's why I think if we could, if we could become 10 times richer in 10 years by just for some reason, we made some deal with, with the devil or whatever and said, if you burn a hundred years worth of coal in 10 years, we will make you 10 times richer than you are today. I think it's an obvious no-brainer that you'd burn the coal, giant bonfires of coal, you'd darken the skies with coal, coal ash, because, or coal smoke. Because if we were 10 times richer, we'd have 10 times the ability to fix a lot of the problems, including the problem that we just created for ourselves by burning a bunch of coal. But if you think that the only way you can get to the solution is by using the tools of the state in the sort of the same way that you only think you can find your car keys where the light is good, um, you are foreclosing a lot of uh, solutions that, you know, might be just around the corner 
if you let a thousand flowers bloom. I, 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 I totally understand that that was a rambling, weird, incoherent, hot mess, and I apologize. Um, but uh, it is what it is. Hopefully it's stuck to tape, or maybe not so hopefully. Um, and uh, um, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>